of Daniel chapter 2. Please turn with me to the book of Daniel chapter 2. We'll be picking up in the 24th verse in earnest. I want to start this morning by saying how thankful I am for the preaching of the Word that has occurred in the last month. I have been edified. If you've missed any or all of the sermons that the brother preachers have preached in the last month, I would encourage you to go to our website and listen to them. You'll be edified, as I have been. On the theme of gratitude, I also want to thank you. I'm thankful for you. Uh, The preacher, standing up in front of himself and preaching, would not accomplish a lot. You cannot have a preacher without a listener. An expositional sermon needs expositional listeners. And God has seen fit to knit us together, to bring us together for this day, that we might worship together. And I'm thankful for you. And I'm particularly thankful for our members. I'm thankful for our prospective members as well. I look forward to getting to know you more. But I want to tell you, um, without apology, that I'm thankful for our church's members. And what I mean by that is, we can't spend time with each other that perhaps as much of it as we'd like to. We have different schedules, different interests, sometimes even different personalities and temperaments. But what I'm thankful for is the covenant that we share, the gospel that we share, that holds us together, the way that Christ binds us together. And I'm thankful that you are the kind of people, emphasis on the word kind, you're the kind of people that I want to befriend. What I mean by that is that you have made a conscious choice to follow Jesus, and that conscious choice is evident of God's work in your life. You did not come to that on your own. God reveals Himself. All revelation is from God. And now that conscious choice is shaping your conscience. Different spelling, same sound. So you have the stuff that lasting friendship is made of because of a spirit that indwells you. The worldly kingdoms can at best, at best, imitate the principles of eternal friendship. But they don't have the stuff to make it last. They say imitation is the highest form of flattery. I wonder from the onset, would you like to trust Christ today? God has made a way for you to have eternal friendships through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You can be born again to an eternal salvation with an eternal people. And it is a gift that I have pledged to offer as often as I preach. A gift that was offered free to me that I have accepted and a gift that is offered freely to you that you may accept. But accept you must. That's how you get the stuff that eternal friendships are made of. As I've said, it's a free gift to you. You need only receive it. It's a sweet exchange, as one said. Christ taking on your sin, you receiving His righteousness. If you receive Christ today this way, I hope that you'll see me at the door on the way out and talk to me about it. Just tell me. 
I believe myself to have recently received Christ. What's next? To all who receive him, the Gospel of John says he gives the right to become children of God. We're called siblings, sons, to be friends as the sermon will end today. And so I'm thankful from the onset. We're going to frame today the time together that we have by thinking about friendship and the differences in friendship in clashing kingdoms. Not just the kingdoms of this world that clash, but the kingdom of the world as it clashes with the kingdom of the Messiah, the kingdom of Christ. A few questions to get you into the the flow of today's text. I wonder if you struggle with loneliness. I wonder if you've ever longed for a friend. You know what that feels like to long for a friend? Perhaps you've invested in the wrong type of friend. Or maybe you've made the mistake, like some of the rest of us, of looking around incessantly for friends and being bothered that you don't have one or don't have enough of them. Or maybe you're reminded of when a friendship didn't work out well. Or maybe of a friend that's passed on. There are all kinds of emotions that surround the concept of friendship. It is a type of love, brotherly love, philos, that is different and yet akin to divine love and even erotic love. Love is love, but God shades love and teaches us how to love. And friendship is a type of love that doesn't always produce immediate benefits. As one thinker said, and I think it's helpful, although I am not as wise as you know, on this particular subject as C.S. Lewis or Ralph Waldo Emerson even in his essay on the subject, I heard a sermon by Tim Keller that I'm thankful for. What you think of him, I don't care, but the particular sermon from Proverbs is good on friendship, and I would commend it to you. But his main thesis in the sermon is very simply this. You don't find friends by looking for them. You find them by serving the Lord and then looking over and seeing who's doing it with you. And that's how you find friends. In other words, you don't find friends by incessantly looking for them. You find friends by serving the Lord and being a friend, and then you find out who's actually in it with you. It's a riveting sermon from Proverbs. I think you can find it online. But that's a little more than I even meant to say about that, other than the fact that I'm thankful for that teaching, because it's really helped me think about friendship across time. But if you've ever longed for a friend or struggled to find friends, I think this text is helpful and apt for you today. And as we look at what it means to be a friend, and the best way of finding a friend is actually being a friend, let's consider how definitions, definitions of friendship is different for the world than it is for those that are following Christ. And I don't mean to answer that necessarily in the consideration right in this moment. I mean, I think the sermon helps us with those considerations point by point. Daniel points us upward in our definition of friendship. Daniel 2 is a chapter of comparisons between man's kingdom and Christ's kingdom. Daniel was occurring in the 6th century BC and was written, I believe, in proximity to it, unlike the redactors of the Bible purport it was not written four or five hundred years later. And although I'm not really sure of the definitions of the kingdoms that are mentioned in Daniel 2, it seems most wise with the knowledge that we have to think of Babylon and then Persia and then Greece and then Rome. And so <clears throat> if you know a little about history, perhaps you know about those kingdoms that ruled about 100 and then 200 and about 300 and 400, over 400 years. And if you don't, you just need to think 500s BC or so all the way down to almost 500 AD and think about these kingdoms that 
I believe Daniel was prophetically mentioning to give us a sense of the kingdom that is coming that will supplant, has supplanted, and will usurp them all. He uses metals to discuss these kingdoms in this passage. And I feel the need to say that before I read the passage so we don't get lost. You're going to hear about an image. You're going to hear about gold and silver and bronze, as well as iron and clay, and finally a stone. And I think you could see the crescendo with the stone easy enough, although we'll talk about it. But each of those four kingdoms, that are, each of those four metals, rather, that are, being descri- that are describing something, they're describing the kingdoms that I just said. I think Babylon, Persia, Greece, and then Rome. Each of them metals decreasing in value from gold on down, but each one getting stronger and longer in tenure, each less unified, all subservient, and ultimately collapsing under the weight did the fourth empire did the fourth empire in the fifth century AD, and ultimately collapsing not just when the Visigoths sacked Rome, but collapsing under the sheer force of the kingdom that is coming, that is Christ's. Christ's kingdom will be consummated one day, though it was inaugurated during the reign of the Roman Empire in the first century AD. And as God's people, we're sitting around praying and waiting for that day in which Christ returns. And not just waiting, but working and laboring for the consummation of the kingdom that Christ inaugurated in that first century AD. So for context, since it's been a while since we've read Daniel, Hear Daniel 2, 17 to 19 before we read and then preach Daniel 2, 24 to 49 about a true and better friend. Daniel 2, 17 to 19 says this, Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. I should just pause and say Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is their Babylonian aliases. But this is their Hebrew names, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. They're called companions, or in one translation, friends. So Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to these three friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And he told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that David and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Well, there's a real and present threat. We just lift our eyes for a moment from the page because I'm giving background for the reading, and I won't, read, I won't comment on the reading of 24 to 49. But the background is Daniel and his friends were lumped in with the wise men of Babylon. That was their education, and that was their work. And they were going to be destroyed because Nebuchadnezzar had a frightening dream that he couldn't interpret, perhaps even couldn't remember. And he was insisting that the wise men did it for him. And they couldn't do it. To a man, they couldn't do it. And so he had sent out the captain of his guard, Arioch, to kill, to destroy the households of the wise men and the wise men themselves. So there was a real threat. And you might think to yourself, this is wonky stuff. Well, in some sense it is, but tyrannical dictatorships is not wonky. It's still very much present in the world today. And furthermore, uh, if you think back uh, to maybe the most frightening dream you've ever had, you know dreams can be quite frightening. If you track back to the 6th century century B.C., the entire milieu of the culture of the time was that dreams meant something, that they were pointing toward the divine, that the gods were in touch with you through dreams and whatnot. And, and if you look even into the New Testament, we see that God is, is very much Lord over dreams. We see the impact of dreams over uh, Mary. We see the impact of dreams over her family, over her husband. And so we see uh, dreams as an important piece in the Bible. Now, he was frightened, and they were all facing death, and Arioch was going to execute the matter. And so Daniel decides to call in his friends 
and say, let's pray together. And that, that's what's going on. These friends are praying, don't know what answer they're going to get, but they're praying to, to, to their God, to the one true God. And it, the prayer, interestingly, in verse 18, is that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. That's important, so park that there. In verse 19, then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Can you imagine having that mystery revealed, that he was able to do what no one else can do? God has been, has been pleased to do that in this situation. And Daniel blessed the God of heaven, and the next four verses are his big blessing. We preached that last time I preached from Daniel 2. And so now we jump to Daniel 24, and I'll read it straightway. Then I want you to notice in verses 24 to 30, interceding, and then verses 31 to 45, the groundedness of this friend. And then verses 46 to 49, the way they serve. Key words, intercede, grounded, and serve. Now here, verses 24 to 49, straight through. Therefore Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. Then Arioch brought in to Daniel before the king in haste and said, Thus to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, No wise man, men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. Verse 31. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and exceeding brightness, of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory, and into whom whose hand he has given wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over, rule over them all. You are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these." And as you saw the feet and toes, partially of potter's clay and partially, partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixes with the soft clay. 
And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. And or as you saw, as you saw rather, the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God was made known to the king. What shall be after this? The dream is certain, and its interpretation, sure. Now verses 46 to 49. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and, the com- and commanded that an offering of an incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is God of God and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and the chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request of the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. May God bless the reading of his word and administer grace unto all who hear. So first, let's take a consideration for, in these contrasting kingdoms, let's take a consideration for the way Daniel intercedes for people. And kind of compare it to Arioch, who would be, a way of thinking of a way that men think about friendship outside of the Lord. So compare Arioch's interceding. Look at what he says in verse 24. He says, I have found the man. I have found the man. I did it. I found the man. Verse 25, rather. Verse 24 sets it up. It says, Therefore Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. And he went in and thus said to him, Don't destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste. And he thus said to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. Now, I don't know if he meant to be as haughty as it sounds, but it sure seems as if he's proud of what he has found and is, perhaps as one said, self-promotional. Far from self-promotional, look at the contrast of Daniel. Daniel begins and ends and fills the middle with giving God glory. Daniel affirms in verse 27 that no man can make heavenly mysteries known. No man can. But Daniel knows God. Daniel doesn't have hubris, but rather humility. He proclaims the Messiah to kings. It says in verse 28, but there is a God in heaven. There is a God in heaven, and that is the God that reveals mysteries. One commentator was describing who this God is, and in this text, he was saying, unlike the Babylonian God Marduk, this God reveals mysteries. He goes on to write that in Daniel 2, God stands forth as the revealer of mysteries. In Daniel, as well as the rest of the Bible, Todd Wilson writes, The word mystery is not intended to refer to something cryptic or clandestine. Rather, it refers to what God has yet to disclose about his purposes for the world. When God reveals to Daniel the mystery of Nebuchadnezzar's dream, Daniel is thus given insight into how history is going to unfold according to God's sovereign saving plan. The Apostle Paul later speaks of this mystery in several of his letters, Romans, Ephesians, Colossians. 
This mystery was kept secret for long ages, Romans says, but now has been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command and the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. So Romans sheds light on the reason why mysteries have been revealed, the purpose of the prophetic writings, and it's all lumped into Christ's coming kingdom and the gospel. I'm reminded of the Pentateuch in Deuteronomy 29, 29, a verse that I learned in Sunday school as a very young child. It says that the secret things belong to the Lord, but the things revealed are for God's people and His children forever and ever. I paraphrase. But it states, to say it differently, that the mysteries that belong to the Lord belong to the Lord, but the things that have been revealed belong to the children of God's kingdom. And so what has been revealed we're responsible for. So how dare we ask for more signs and wonders in order to further affirm the revelation that has already been affirmed by signs and wonders? We have this glorious revelation. It has been affirmed with signs and wonders. It's a completed revelation. In fact, we recently preached through the, whole re- preached through the book of Revelation, which speaks consummatorily of the Bible all as revelation. So instead of demanding more material, more signs, like perhaps the error that heterodox sects and heretical sects make, like Mormons, ought not we to be content with this revelation? Ought not we to be the people that refuse to drift from this great salvation? Does not that great Christological book of Hebrews warn us as it warned its Jewish readership in the first century, firstfold, that we ought not drift from this great salvation? We must pay careful attention to salvation. We have more revelation of texts than Daniel did in the 6th century B.C., but we do not have a different God. Our God is the God. Our God is the God that saw fit to offer a salvation through the person and work of Christ. Our God is the God that brought Elijah and Moses before the apostles on the Mount of Transfiguration. And just as in that first century, the saints of old were seen in that transfiguratory moment, so one day we will see the saints of all ages that were knowing God in their lives We will see them and know them eternally. Now, lest you think that is an ancillary point to this text, I think it isn't because those are our friends forever. They're our forever friends. They're not our Facebook friends. They're not our acquaintances out in the streets. They're not fickle friends, like people that want to one-up you or get something from you in this life. It is true that all friendships carry some kind of utility, some kind of value. They do. But Christ gives us friends for more than what we can get from them and more than what they can get from us. In fact, Christ, in His friendship, helps us to overcome that kind of utility and short-term thinking and destructiveness that we have to be able to get something from someone in order for them to have value to us. The biblical worldview has long since showed us that we can be friends with those who are mentally facing challenges. You know, if you live long enough, you're mentally going to decline anyway, most likely. Do you know one of the blessings of being a part of an intergenerational church? 
is you learn how to prepare for that before you get there by praying for those that are a little bit older than you. It's a blessing. It's one of the reasons we don't pursue some target audience of 25 to 45 that can help us be hip and pay the bills. I don't think that's the way the family of God's supposed to be shaped. Nor do we play to a certain generation that has to have all exactly the same uniformity of a way of service must be done to be able to be baby boomers and above. Nor do we just have all the teens. I mean, our honest prayer is that the Lord will build His church the way He wants to and that we'll be welcoming of every single age, from infancy to the point of death. All of it. And furthermore, even the unborn children. Pray for the unborn children. Globally, nationally, but, but right here in our community and in our church. We have pregnant mamas right here among us right now. Would you pray for them? From cradle to grave, we learn. And we learn because God has made us friends. And this friendship eternally isn't lost on this first point. Because what Daniel is able to do, because he is faithful to his God and not self-promotional, what he's able to do is act in such a manner that he, he shares revelation with the people around him in word and in deed. And furthermore, by not being self-promotional because of what's going on inside of him, he is able to live out the truth that the exalted will be humbled and the humble will be exalted. He's able to live a life of humility, especially in this moment, as a kind of exemplar for us, that we can see that we don't get where we really want to be through self-promotion, but we get where we really want to be by God's promotion. We elevate the name of the Lord. We lift Him high. And this is why, like in verse 30, we hear Daniel saying, But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that you may know the thoughts of your mind. And of course, Daniel points us to Christ who came to reveal the thoughts of many minds. That's what Luke says in 1 and 2 and beyond. Jesus knew their very thoughts. John says that Jesus would not entrust himself to men because he knew what was in a man. So he didn't give us the power to read all the thoughts of men. And we ought not ask such questions as if this revelation is not enough. This was a stitch in time, a prophetic word to point us toward the gospel. And we have more revelation here than Daniel did. And we ought to be very thankful for that. Very thankful. Aren't you thankful for books like Colossians that tell you about the preeminence of Christ? Aren't you thankful for the Gospels? Aren't you thankful for the New Testament and thankful for the completion of the Old? What a wonderful book that we have. All revelation belongs to the Lord. This first point is best summarized in saying, very simply, that a faithful friend is spiritually humble, not self-promotional. And I wonder today if perhaps you need to apply that to your life in some way. Where have you lived functionally as a self-promotional person? Would you be willing to humble yourself as to look not only after your own interests, but even the interests of your enemies? You know what's interesting in this text is that old Daniel's not a pushover, that's for sure. But you know his faithfulness actually results in sparing the lives of wise men who despised him. The astrologers that despised him, they don't die. When we live out our faith, we are a blessing to the world, even in spite of how they feel about us. Be that type of friend. Be the type of friend that Hananiah and Mishael 
and Azariah had with Daniel. Meaning, be a friend that prays together and be a friend that isn't self-promotional. Be that type of friend. Don't worry as much about finding friends. Be the friend that prays humbly. Show people the Lord that inspires such prayer. Number two, after considering such interceding friends, consider the ground of Daniel's friendship. The ground of Daniel's friendship. It's grounded. If you compare King Nebuchadnezzar with the Lord of Kings, this temporary gold with this eternal stone that this text talks about in verses 31 to 45, you see a comparison between that which is temporary and that which is eternal. A faithful friend is grounded not in that which is temporary, but in that which is eternal. Now, truly, we can't make such a strident distinction because what we do here matters, and I don't mean to advocate that it does not. I simply mean to say that a faithful friend is one that is grounded not in the circumstances of this very moment alone, but is grounded in the eternal and unfolding plan of God. Primarily meaning this, as we are helping people understand their lives and walking in lives with people, we're never losing sight of the gospel ground that we have. We're never losing sight of the fact that even if we can't understand why certain types of pains and sufferings are being allowed to happen in this particular moment, and they couldn't either. We'll read about that in chapter 3 with the fiery furnace. We don't know why we're allowed to go through some of the things we're going through when we're going through them. What we do know is, is that none of our pains and our sufferings are purposeless because they are grounded in God's unfolding plan, and He is sovereign over every moment. And because of that ground, we are able to point people to our great God, whether He fixes our issue or not. In this moment, he fixed an issue. In other moments, perhaps the fix to the issue is being a martyr, suffering. You know, they say, I believe that the voice of the martyrs says that an average of 13 or so uh, Christians around the world die for their faith every day. Let's remember to pray for them, dying for their faith. Perhaps you've faced a different type of persecution, maybe marginalization as we've said before, looked over for a promotion, lost a job, living out your faith. Perhaps you've lost friends that weren't really friends. Maybe that's you. I wonder if this ground of the kingdom come can help you go through those times, but also help you be a wise friend as you're going through those times. This type of friend is a friend that is grounded in Christ's eternal kingdom. They have a breadth that gives them depth and speech. Man's kingdom is not where your treasure is tied up as a believer. Your treasure is tied up in God's eternal kingdom. I can't help as I look at this text, but think about the distinction between wheat and chaff. The distinction between wheat and chaff, which is thought of as a distinction between the saved and the unsaved the victorious and the unvictorious. When you're reading this text along, and I won't reread it all, but you see the chaff mentioned in verse 35. You also see mentioning of a great mountain that the kingdom grows into, the eternal kingdom. How can we not think about humble beginnings and learn to not despise the day of small things? How can our minds not go forward to the New Testament, which cites the old, and reminding us that the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. 
Luke 20, 18. As the kingdoms look to be getting longer and longer in duration, they're becoming more and more fractured, more and more brittle, more and more assured of separation. But the Messiah's inaugurated kingdom will continue to advance. That's the prophetic message of this passage. Daniel explains the dream in a courageous manner, grounded in the good news. And he does it in this way in verse 36. Verse 36 says, This was the dream. Now we will tell you, now we will tell you the king, its interpretation. Interesting use of the plural. Verse 37, You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory. You toppled earthly Judah. You toppled every other king. God has temporarily given you this gold standard appeal, and yet you can't sleep at night. You're, you're, you're up in the middle of the night, and you're worried about this, this dream. And he is here given what we now have as a sort of traditional Lord's Prayer designation. The kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Right? And this designation is also to indicate to Nebuchadnezzar the fleeting nature of his kingdom and of his domain and his power. It's almost as if to say, you can rest again now. You're fine right now. No more sleepless nights right now. But know this, Babylon is not eternal. This one true God's kingdom is. Babylon is not eternal. This one true God's kingdom is. If you want to rest eternally, you must rest assured that this is the God. And finally, interestingly, the Babylonian deity Marduk has some competition. Now, this one true God, we'll see in the end of the passage, gets some overture of recognition from King Nebuchadnezzar. It seems to ebb and flow, but it's something. What an accomplishment. God was seeking to give something here, not just to this King Nebuchadnezzar, not just to spare the enemies of Daniel and his friends, but also to help us to see God's unfolding plan more fully. Persia would conquer Babylon. Greece would conquer Persia. But Cyrus nor Alexander would last either. And Rome's greatest, greatest claim could only be the birth of the Christ child that their own governing authorities sought to kill. Consider verse 43. As you saw, the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together just as iron does not mix with clay. What a statement of the fragility of all coalitions on earth. You know, we work so hard to form partnerships, don't we? To form coalitions. So much of business and work is about networking. And it is important. I mean, I also work for networking purposes. It is important. But I wonder if you've thought of the fragility of earthly networks. I mean, the network that's going to last is Christ's network, right? The network that's going to last is in the Messiah. That's not to say that our work is futile or unimportant. Again, I don't mean that. There's dignity in work. I just mean to say in the second point that being grounded in the eternal rightly shapes and frames all of our temporal work. 
And we must remember that. It's one of the reasons we gather on the Lord's Day. There are many reasons, but one of the reasons is to recalibrate our focus in light of eternity. We need it every week. We are frail. Daniel helps us here. In his most trying time, he points toward the kingdom and the power and the glory, even as he recognizes some measure of earthly power and glory in Nebuchadnezzar. Again, about verse 43, the coalitions are not as united as they appear. This prophetic text tells us that these coalitions will fall. This is probably why Jesus speaks the way he does in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, or at least it's some part of why he says, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added unto you. I don't think that that text is a a text of proof for the prosperity gospel. If you just seek Christ and you're going to have all the money you want, I don't think that's what that means. If you read Matthew 6.33 in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, I think what he's saying is, you're concerned about how much you give, and you're concerned about your prayers, and you're really concerned about forgiveness and reconciliation and relationships and maybe not doing it enough, and you're really worried about your clothes and your food, and, and, and all the, this is all in Matthew 6. And he says, you know, he takes care of flowers and birds. Doesn't he take care of you? And then the, cat, the end of that whole text in Matthew 6 within the Sermon on the Mount kind of has a little soft conclusion there, but seek first the kingdom of God and all these things. Well, you know, they'll, be, they'll find the right place. They'll fall into the pecking order where they're supposed to be. Aren't you like me, though? Don't you tend to want to take these things and put them up here on top and then add Christ down at the bottom? When we need to start our week on the Lord's Day with Christ and stay with it as we're getting dragged down into the mire of all these things. I wonder if these things have caused you to functionally lose the ground of the gospel in your decision-making these past week. Rest assured that Christ has got you when you don't feel like you've got Him. Also rest assured that what He wants for you is to seek His kingdom and let these things joyfully fall where they may. Follow the kingdom that is eternal. May that be your ground and your counsel will be better and your joy will be fuller. You'll have joy unspeakable, full of glory, simply by considering afresh that which you already know. This eternal kingdom is the ground of all that we say and do. Finally, thirdly, remember your prayer partners. The catchword is serve. You know, Christ came not to be served, Mark 10, 20, 45 says, but he came to serve. Not to be served, but to serve. Well, how much, if anybody was ever worthy of being served, it's Christ, right? We're not really worthy of it. And he shows us this model that, that Daniel had caught way back when of seeking the, to serve others rather than simply to get all that I can get for me. And this is, this is how we get where we're going with this. Look at Daniel chapter 2, verses 44 and 45, and then into this thorough aspect of serving and risk-taking as a friend in verses 46 to 49. So look at verses 44 and 45, and then leverage into the last verses. It says, And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end. 
and it shall stand forever. Clearly talking about Christ's eternal kingdom, right? There is no other kingdom that's going to stand forever. So we know that. We know the rest of the story. Verse 45, just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain and its interpretation sure. What courage, right? I mean, he's telling Nebuchadnezzar you're not eternal. It's still courageous no matter how you slice it. And what happens here? is he finds favor with King Nebuchadnezzar, and then look at what Daniel does with that favor. It's, it's astonishing, and it's an astonishing spiritual principle for friendship. Look at verse 46. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel. Now, we know we're not supposed to do that, but it eventually gets vertical. He commanded that an offering of incense be offered up to Daniel. In verse 47, the king answered and said to Daniel, Truly, your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery or recognition of Daniel's God, working through Daniel. Verse 48, Then the king gave Daniel high honors and a great many gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and the chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Indeed, a, a, indeed, a promotion for Daniel, even though he wasn't seeking self-promotion. He was humble. He was grounded. But he's also a servant. Look at what happens in verse 49. It's an astonishing verse. That wouldn't have to be included, but God wants it there for us, for our prophet. Daniel made a request of the king of anything he could ask here. And admittedly, it's still a risky ask. I mean, when you ask the most powerful man in the world for something, no matter what you've done for him recently, he can still turn you into a dead person. He can do that. It's in his power to do that. And of all the requests he could make, of all the things he could ask for, he says and asks, would you appoint... And he uses their Babylonian names. Would you appoint these three, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, over the affairs of the province of Babylon? It's just astonishing to me. As I read this text, I couldn't get it out of my head. It says that Daniel remained at the king's court, but the request that he made was for his friends, for his friends to have a privilege for his friends to have promotion, for his friends to have security. How does Daniel expend this temporary moment of relational capital? By being a friend. He says to the king, I want these three prayer partners of mine. Maybe he didn't call them that. Alias Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. As they've sought the welfare of of this city where we are exiled, like Jeremiah taught them to, at least the, the text tells them to, seek the welfare of the city you're in, in your exile. Would you promote them? This is the sign of faithful friendship. Not to be served alone, but to serve. And in order to have friends, worth anything, we must first learn to be a friend. And we must learn to be friends that are not self-promotional, but humble. That are not grounded in the fleeting powers of these earthly kingdoms, but are grounded in Christ's eternal kingdom. And they're not grounded in, finally, once I arrive, I'm going to make sure that I request everything for me and put everybody else in their place but instead to use what little bit of capital we have relationally to say, 
How about these? How about these? Remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The application is not to have friends like this as much as we want them, but to be a friend like this. You know, I'm blessed in my life, really, one of the great privileges of being a pastor of a church like this, like, like this church right here, is the candidate pool for friends is so deep. I'm glad we have eternity to spend time together because we can't really spend all that we'd like to right now. I mean that from the bottom of my heart. When we, when we share meals together throughout the week, when we interact with one another, and we talk about this word that's reverberating around the church, I'm not amazed at how great of a preacher I am. I am, because frankly, I know that I'm not. I'm also not self-deprecating. I think I'm supposed to do this. But what's amazing to me is that the word just keeps bouncing around with us. Like, we just keep talking about it, and there's implications for how you live your lives. It's almost like the pastoral application I'm going to make here at the end, it's almost like I didn't have to make it because it's going to be made because of God's faithful work in you. In many ways, you are this type of friend pool. And so my first application and conclusion here is just simply, if you're looking for friends and you can't pause to just be a friend, start here. It's a great place to find friends. It's a great place to find exemplary friends. Perfect friends, no. But humble friends, yes. People that are being turned and shaped in their consciences by the Word of God. And so I am thankful for you, and I want you to be thankful for you, plural. And I want you to know that we're in this together, and that God's doing something because it's His to do. And we're just the recipients of it, and we're thankful for it. The first thing is, look for friends here. The second thing I would say is, is if your heart, by way of application, if your heart has been burdened by so many things, um, just uh, without too many descriptions, just, just out and about as the kingdoms clash and the, the networks form and the, somebody wins and somebody loses and somebody gets stepped on on the way up the ladder and the person gets up the ladder and realizes they can fall off and die from the top too and the whole nine yards. If you've been caught up in that whole thing, I just wonder today if you would find a peace that passes understanding afresh because of your faith and ground in this kingdom of Christ. I wonder if your anxiety could be lessened by the presence and reality of Christ's advancing kingdom. And thirdly, in service to being a friend, I wonder if you would make it a point to pray for the other members. To pray for your friends in life, even if they're not a member of this church. To pray diligently for those people that you either want to be friends with or have found to be a faithful friend to you. And you, you, say for, you might say, well, that seems awfully simple. How often do we forget to pray with our friends and to pray for our friends? I know I do. Pray with your friends and pray for your friends. It was a crisis moment to be sure, but these friends were praying together, right? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Daniel, they're praying together. And I bet you they pray for each other too. I was thinking about this text for today and I'm reminded of how Hebrews, well, Revelation 11 says it too, but Hebrews 12, 28 says something about this text that I think is really climactic and helpful. It says in Hebrews 12, uh, 28, just, just listen to the words. 
Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. We're offering worship to God as a part of His kingdom with reverence and awe in our tone as we follow a gospel structure to our service, reverential and awe, gratitude, grateful, because we're receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. It cannot be busted up. It cannot, it's not made of the stuff that man's kingdom is made of. It will not be busted up. We're going to make it because of Him. This is why we don't sing what a friend we have in Daniel. What do we sing? As the old hymn writer wrote, what a friend we have in Jesus. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and all our griefs, griefs to bear. It's a privilege, isn't it? To carry every single need to God in prayer. Last thing I'll say, and we'll pray. Jesus is preparing for the cross. I love John's gospel as we're looking at the, the language of lead up to the cross. I just love it. I love all the gospels, but I love John's gospels, gospel for this. And there's so many things to mine in John 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. Way well, praise for the future believers as well as the current believers. It's a beautiful passage. But most aptly, I think, when we're thinking about Christ and where our thought should be is on Christ, he says, in effect, in John 15, you all know my business. I've told you what we're about. So I'm not just your leader, your Lord. I'm, I'm not just to be worshipped. I'm also a friend. I'm your friend. I wonder if that might positively shape your prayer this week. Would you bow your head with me? Heads with me as we pray together now. Let's pray it out together. Dear Heavenly Father, we are thankful that the adversities, the cross that we face this week, we never face without a friend like Jesus did because we have a friend that will never leave us or forsake us. He faced that loneliness so we would not have to. How thankful we are. We are glad in you today. We are thankful. We want to take the time to petition you today for our older members whom we love. Help us to demonstrate our love in more tangible ways to our older members. Help those who are younger to serve faithfully with their energy. We pray for Mrs. Della Metter and Dorothy Seibert who turn 87 and 88 years old this Tuesday and Saturday. And we petition you that they might be encouraged. Remind them that our outwardness is not an accurate reflection of our inward renewal. 
We pray for those with internal struggles today. Please free them from the chains of silent slavery. Spirit, we are thankful that the Christian worldview led the West to abolish outward enslavement. But so many of us are still internally enslaved. We pray for freedom. And we thank you for a holiday that reminds us that the Christian worldview led us through the painful process of ending the transatlantic slave trade. For granting us protection under the law equally. Ours is now an opportunity. And so we pray for the end of all racial prejudice amongst Christians. For an end to human enslavement worldwide. And we pray for an end to sex trafficking that occurs even today on our borders and at our ball games. No more. Give us a heart for your people. We pray for our flock to have unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Guide our members this way. Guide our prospective members to where they should be. Help us to be unselfish. Help us to pray. I pray for True Vine Baptist Church, and I ask, Lord, you would help Pastor Josh LaGrange in Ferdinand. Help his health. Help his friend. And we pray for their building project. We pray for our students. We're thoughtful of those that are away right now at school. Pray you would sustain them in their faith. We pray for our students and our teachers right here at home. Grow their faith. Ground them in the gospel. Teach them of a kingdom that won't pass away. Make them humble. Give them hope. We pray for missions to the world. We're so thankful for the way you helped our friends Dave and Pam these past weeks. Please aid our hospitality, Lord. We never know when we might be entertaining angels. Pray for our littlest children and our wayward children. The griefs of parents. We pray for our wayward members to come back. We pray for families that are broken. The holidays have reminded us of broken families. We pray for them to be made whole. God, we pray for Craig's mom and for the sick like John Walker and Paul Bestie's brother and Don Smith and others. We pray for the chronically ill and the shut-in, the hospitalized. Pray for healing. We pray for the grieving, like the Ray Brown family. We pray for our leaders of our church that are preparing to gather to pray. We pray for this year. Teach us to pray, we ask. Would you please equip future leaders and send them our way now? The shepherding responsibilities are great. We pray you send laborers into your harvest field and help us rightly identify them in the due time. That you might grow us in knowing and in grace. Would you help the ministries of our Sunday schools and of the Word this quarter? Provide hope for people as well as instruction. Lord, we know people fade for a lack of encouragement. 
and hope deferred makes the heart sick. So I ask you to help the dejected among us, the sidelined by sickness among us, the distracted by many things among us, the undisciplined who need to follow through among us, and the overloaded who need to see every part of the body as essential and not just themselves that are among us. Show us how to encourage a brother and a sister today. God, persecution, not prosperity, has been the great tool to spread the gospel. Though we would rather not have to go without, as we pray for our material needs, we also ask for our immaterial needs, the enrichment of our souls. Open the eyes of nominal Christians who have been seduced into carnality. Draw them to the narrow way. For only with the plank out of our eyes can we see clearly to prioritize action. Today is your day, O Lord, and we prioritize it over any game in America. Whatever we do, in viewing or in abstaining, we do for your glory alone, with gratefulness in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.